Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soul Fire production. production. Hi, good morning. Good morning. All right, so I just wanted to tell everybody that uh, I'm happy that they're here listening to Podcast 221, and I'm here with my nature correspondent, auto mechanic, traffic reporter, technical wizard, and guru, the mysterious <laughs> one who's really mysterious lately, out on the road. I am. Yep. Where are you today? Uh, Where are you? Um, I'm in my cousin's backyard because uh, the technical issues with Hope was not working this morning, and... If you can see, I just spilled coffee all down my toes. Well, um, you know, that's like saying in your cousin's backyard would be like saying, uh, like, I'm uh, <laughs> I'm in some small town in Indiana, and that's close to another small town in Indiana. And Actually, no, I'm back in, um, I'm back in California. I'm in Folsom, California, um, okay. which is really close to Sacramento, which is where um, I'm helping my boys find an apartment. Right, I knew that, but I don't think listeners knew that your sister's backyard was uh, was in Folsom, California. <laughs> right, so I'm back in California, and I'm back on the same mask mandates that you guys are. Which, um, is, which is civil disobedience, don't wear your mask, but that's the way it goes. Yeah, so, we're gonna, you know. We're going to be getting into some real lunacy uh, in today's podcast, but I got to catch you up on a lot of stuff. So um, I'm wearing my LA Kings garb today because... Um, this past week was uh, the draft and free agency signings. My team signed a couple of good players, so I'm really looking forward to the season. Assuming, what? Assuming that Staples Center doesn't have a vaccine mandate and a mask mandate, because uh, if they do, then the LA Kings will be less one season ticket holder, I suspect. But that will be a discussion to come in October. I, I wrote my my rep and he says, well, you know, we're, we're sort of at the mercy of the LA uh, health department, LA County health department who are totalitarian fascists. So he didn't say that, that's my words, but uh, I don't <laughs> want to get him in any trouble. Um, but anyway, guess what, guess what's going on for me? Um, you don't have any births. That's right. I'm on vacation. Woo -woo. But it doesn't feel like vacation because no. I still have a million things to do this week, and I still potentially have a breech birth of our friend Beth's hanging out there that if I'm around, I will do it. If not around, then Dr. Flores will, will cover for it, but Dr. Flores lives far away. So, and she's really pregnant, right? Uh, she's in her eighth month. Yeah, she's in her eighth month. Yeah. <laughs> she wasn't around. She was in the office with us on Thursday. Uh, she cool. comes to just sort of um, absorb like a sponge. Because mm -hmm. it's all, the, there is no uh, book or textbook on how to run a home birth medical practice. Yeah, good for her though, for, you know, wanting to learn from you and being open to doing something different. So while I was waiting for you, I was just checking my email and I got an email from a woman in Portugal. And I just wanted to read it real quick because it, it's going to tie into what, um, follow up on some of the things that I wanted to talk about. Um, I'm 30 weeks pregnant with die die twins today at the morphological ultrasound. I love that. That's the way they talk in 
we call it an anatomic ultrasound. They call it a morphological ultrasound. Yeah. Uh, baby two was uh, 1,131 grams and baby one was 1,460 grams. So I took out my trusty iPhone calculator and calculated that to be a 20.5% discordance between the twins. The doctor was concerned and said my obstetrician might want to consider pros and cons of er inducing early labor. I would love to have an online consultation with you. Okay, so this is the thing that a lot of people will write to me and ask me for my opinion on something. And obviously, I want to be very clear that I cannot give independent medical or individual medical opinions without fully reviewing the records, doing my own exam, doing my own ultrasound, that sort of thing. So these things are... are um, not something that I can do, but I can give general advice. And my general advice would be to, this is from Michelle, would be for her to look at her previous ultrasounds and see what the difference between the twin sizes were um, and see if there's any evidence that they're, they're falling off. One of them is falling off its growth curve or both of them growing beautifully on their own growth curve. Because this thing about 20% discordance really is meaningless. It's just another algorithmic number that people use, but if babies are 20% discordant, but they're constantly 20% discordant, or they're both growing on their own growth curve, and even the discordance is growing, as long as the other ba both babies are growing with normal biophysical profile stuff, there's no reason to be intervening here. So I will give that as general advice. So can I, I'm not going to say can I, I'm going to ask a question. Yeah. <clears throat> um, learning. So, so uh, when we get these requests, because I'm also getting requests to, as I mentioned on the last podcast, to do um, some virtual consults. The thing is, is that we can give them our opinion um, from our perspective of how we would manage their care, um, but their hands are tied to a certain degree because we're not their providers. So let's say this woman, Michelle, you said, took your advice and looked at her previous ultrasound and saw that both babies are growing beautifully. What would be your recommendation at that point to be able to advocate for herself, not having so much interventions, um, having that piece of information? Yeah, I would, I would say that if she likes her practitioner, she should approach her practitioner and have that discussion and ask what her practitioner's concerns. I'm, you know, I'm only saying that what, what happened here is the either the radiologist or the maternal fetal medicine specialist who do their ultrasound suggested something, planted these seeds. Her obstetrician may not agree with that at all. So we don't even know where her obstetrician lies. But if her obstetrician takes the word of this ultrasound person and now starts to throw fear at them, I would first, because if I like that person, I would first ask them to try to explain it to me and and maybe come in armed with a little bit of information like I just said, well, if the babies are both growing well on their own growth curve and there's no evidence that one is smaller, there's no problems with, and this is big terminology, but there's no problems with color flow, color flow Doppler or anything else going on that would be signs that there's one baby falling off. And we do know that they're die-die twins. Why, are we, why would we be worried? And if she's still not feeling comfortable, then I always tell people to look at potentially getting a second opinion, no matter how far under their pregnancy you are. But sometimes you live in a small community, there isn't other, there are other choices, and then you're right, Bliss, then you're sort of stuck. Yeah, that's, that's the unfortunate part. You know, 
we are getting a lot of feedback from people about the difference that um, our conversations are making in regards to how they're educating themselves and knowing what their options are, which I'm delighted. I'm really delighted. Um, but I do find that, you know, we're limited to a certain degree and really making the impact that I think you and I would really want to make because, you know, the pressures that are happening when they're still delivering um, can be overwhelming. So that's kind of what's on my brain today. Yeah, no, no. And it is because we, you, you and I both hear this all the time. Sometimes we even get shared emails and sometimes you get yours and I get mine. And, you know, yeah. we, we, we just, yeah, we can only do what we can do. And we have to make sure, you know, sometimes when people give advice, like a, a non-medical person, they'll put a disclaimer at the bottom that this is not, a, this is, I'm not a medical person. This is not, we are medical people. We can yeah. give advice, but you have to be very careful about giving specific individual advice more, more as general concepts. Right, exactly. Um, so remember last, I don't think it was last podcast, but the one before that I was talking about, you know, in my travels, I was noticing in terms of what the laws were for midwifery and one of my uh, fellow cohorts. So one of the women that I went to school with um, just moved to Oklahoma. And in Oklahoma and Arkansas, it's the same as what I was mentioning in Iowa that there are no specific laws. So it's either considered, you know, the terminology is either illegal, so mm -hmm. it's not illegal, but it's illegal, so there's no laws, or it's considered um, unregulated as the midwife that I spoke to in Iowa preferred. Um, but the interesting thing is we were talking on our little chat that those midwives, although they don't have the same laws that you and I are frustrated about in California, um, they are not allowed to do things like order lidocaine or um, oxygen or uh, Pitocin or any of the kind of medical, more medical things that we carry. And, you know, it, it, it brought me to thinking about like, you know, if I could trade uh, the medicine for people who really trusted birth and being able to serve people that, you know, I could practice as a midwife um, in the traditional sense of how midwives used to practice, less medicalized and more, you know, as a support person, um, I think I'd do it. So anyways, I thought that was kind of an interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I do too. And I, again, it's just another example sort of, of medical tyranny and stupidity that, that a person who is medically trained just doesn't have the specific license, can't use lidocaine. For, for instance. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think there are field doc, field people who work um, like on mountain climbers and stuff like that. They, they probably carry some lidocaine. I don't know that they're all medical, but they probably get it and they carry it and they use it. Anyway, I'm not saying- but the reason that I the reason that I brought it up is because you feel limited to giving medical advice because you hold a medical license. So if, if we didn't have those restrictions, we wouldn't, we wouldn't feel so limited in terms of what we could say or not say. We would just be people giving our opinions about things. So it's the, the licensure and getting licensure as midwives. It's different, obviously, as an obstetrician who's actually practicing medicine. But midwives, you know, traditionally, we weren't medical providers. It was, you know, it's a different... Yeah the different things. So thinking about, you know, not having licensure or not having a license, does it really give you more ability to serve women or less? Um, which I think is, is 
a big conversation amongst, you know, traditional midwives who have been practicing for a very long time and more kind of of the modern, modern midwife, professional midwife. So yeah, I don't, I don't feel limited to give advice because of my license. As a matter of fact, I feel sort of liberated to do it, but I, I just think it's the ethical proper thing to do. It's, it, it could be the same thing from a mechanical stuff. I mean, um, yeah. you know, you may be an auto mechanic and your, and your cousin's gotten getting his car fixed, but you don't know the details. Should you be giving, telling him specifically what to do without knowing or examining the car? I, maybe right. that's not a great analogy, but you get my point. <laughs> I do. Okay. So um, the, the, the ever go, ever, the never ending castor oil failed forever <laughs> twin birth saga finally ended two days ago uh, at 40 and six sevenths weeks. We had awesome. um, ruptured membranes. By the time baby A came out for 20, 28 hours, uh, GBS was negative. She never spiked a fever. She never had a vaginal exam when she ruptured. And when she finally, she, her labor was very, didn't go into labor for a while. She even came to the office about 20 hours after she broke her bag of waters to do a non-stress test on the twins. It was perfect. We sent her home. Maybe it was the therapeutic car ride. I got to believe it was. She went with her dad brought her. Because by the time she got home shortly after, she was in labor. So we canceled the rest of our day. We all went over there and she had a lovely delivery of uh, Vertex Vertex Twin Girls. Great. So congratulations. So, to them. Yeah. Congratulations to go ahead, finish. Yeah, I was going to say, and of course, biggest concern we had because her uterus wasn't really contracting really well all through labor. We, we tried the castor oil several weeks earlier. She'd been walking around, by the way, six to seven centimeters for more than two and a half weeks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she had several sweeps and nothing happened. So we were worried about a postpartum hemorrhage, of course. And so we did active management. When the, when the second twin came out we get, and the cord stopped pulsating, we gave a shot of Pitocin in the thigh and we waited for the placentas to come out and they, there was a little separation gutch and the placentas came out relatively easily and gave her very vigorous fundal massage and it seemed like we were winning. And then I went downstairs to tell the family members who were downstairs that everything was okay because they had been nervous Nellies probably for an, the entire nine months when they found out their daughter was going to have a out of hospital twin birth. But, and then, so then all of a sudden my student runs down and says, Stu, we need you. <laughs> and I come back up there and of course she's pouring blood out. And so we slap in an IV and we thought about putting an IV in ahead of time. But again, it was sort of an invasive thing and we really didn't want to do it. And I thought we were, would be on top of it, but we slapped in an IV, we hung Pitocin. And then I, we also hung um, TXA. Yeah. Which is tranexamic acid. I might be saying that wrong, but we hung a, a thousand milligrams of TSA and um, got on top of it. We ended up having a blood loss of about 1400 was our estimate. Mm -hmm. And she was lightheaded when we eventually got her out of bed. She almost passed out, but that was very typical. But the bleeding's been stable. We saw her yesterday, she's fine. We're pretty much out of the woods with that. Placentas were huge. Um, they were really different. Baby B's was more typical thick placenta. Baby A's was, was like twice the surface area of baby B's, but, but thinner, really thin, like a thin crust pizza and uh, very calcified. Baby A was small, baby A was six pounds, baby B was seven pounds. So um, 
know, normal size, even maybe for twins, but that's 40, uh, 40 weeks and six days. Anyway, they were fine because we were testing them, but I just want to espouse the virtues of TXA. Yeah, and, that's the first time using it? No, I've used it once before. And one of the midwives that was at the birth said she's used it five times and every time it's worked really well. And you and can you can you tell us how it's how it's used? What's the dosage and how I it's can't. used? Yay! Because it was discussed at this um, conference. Remember, I attended this online conference a month or two ago, and I talked a little bit about some of the pearls. So mm -hmm. anyway, TXA is how, when, and where to use it. It's one gram IV given over ten minutes or so, with an additional you can do in thirty minutes. We didn't have to do that. The um, TXA is compatible with oxytocin, so you don't have to hang a separate bag. If you've got pit in your bag, you can just shoot the TXA into the same bag. Um, you diagnose it when you, when you diagnose a postpartum hemorrhage, ideally within three hours. Not sure if that's three hours of diagnosis or three hours of birth. Do not I think, yeah, I think it's supposed to be used pretty shortly after birth. That's in my research, that's when it's most effective. Well, if they're bleeding, you want to get it in there, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't wait, so I'm not sure why that's yeah. even said that way. But yeah, uh, do not delay other interventions to give TXA. So if you're going to use fundal massage, or you're going to use mesoprostol, or you're going to use in the hospital, you can inject prostin or methogen or whatever. You do all that anyway while you're. Don't wait for the TXA. Just get that. All that other stuff should be going. Does mm -hmm. the duration of actions last about three hours? So you want to make sure you keep an eye on her beyond the three hours to see if something changes. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. Let's see, it reduces the patient's risks uh, significantly. Um, now it says you should give it within three hours for a postpartum hemorrhage where they say the estimated blood loss is greater than 500 cc's for vaginal delivery or a thousand for cesarean delivery. But that's old, uh, that's old terminology and that's still what they were teaching at the conference just this past week, but I guess this is a this is a slide from July 2017. So right now we consider postpartum hemorrhage to be over a thousand cc's, and it doesn't matter how it's done, whether it's vaginal or by cesarean. It seems silly that a hemorrhage would be less for a vag. You know, you qualify it as less for a vaginal birth than you would for a cesarean birth. When did that start, Stu? I didn't know that that, that terminology has changed. Uh, I think it's within the last two years. Oh, okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I just want to say that it works. I carry it. It doesn't have to be refrigerated. Um, so I carry it in my suitcase. And uh, we were prepared to use it. We had it out. We had all the things out on the tray, ready mm -hmm. to use the mesoprost. We never did the mesoprost because we went right to the TXA. Um, and, fun and there's no substitute. I'm sorry for this, but there's no substitute for milking the clots out of the lower urine segment and doing fungal massage because that's, she had stopped bleeding perfectly after the birth. And it was about 10 minutes later that the lower part of the uterus had just filled up with blood. So you've got to keep an eye on that, especially when you have an overdistended uterus. Yeah, one gram within 10 minutes, over 10 minutes, that means the IV should, bag should run through within 10 minutes? Yeah. Well, no, we didn't. We just ran it wide open. It took longer than 10 minutes to get it in. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's kind right. of hard to get it. You, the other option is to put it in a small side bag where you can run that in quicker, like a 250. Yeah. Yeah. And to... active management, uh, you said you guys were planning to do active management. So you, you did a shot of Pitocin IM, but isn't active, doesn't active management include an IV typically? 
no, I don't know. Not in the home setting that I would think. I would think. I just thought. No, of, I just thought of active management, meaning that you 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 don't wait to see if you need to give pitocin. You just give pitocin. Okay. My understanding is it, you have you have you're prepared for an IV. That, that's my understanding. Prepared for an IV, or you have an IV in. Either you have a, a port in already, oh. or you have an IV bag hung and ready, you know, with the Pitocin and that you would give it um, through an IV. That bad was my steward, Bad steward, bad steward. <laughs> I might be wrong, but that was my understanding of That's if okay. I was going to, if I was going to do active management, if I was concerned about a postpartum hemorrhage, I would have the IV ready. And that might just be because my skills aren't as strong as yours. So I would, I would prefer to have it in so that if we needed it, I'm not you know, trying to get an IV in with a woman who's already bleeding because that's it's hard probably to the in. wisest uh, course to have action. It's just that the, the the patient was really reluctant. I got it. Blaming her because <laughs> she would have done anything I said. So, but I just yeah. I just deferred to that. All yeah. right. So we have a correction. Okay. It was not Louisa May Alcott. Oh, that's right. I'm glad you remembered. <laughs> how did I? How did I? I mean, I should be I should be shunned being from Minnesota. That, that I did remember was Laurel Ingalls Wilder that wrote Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> so I apologize. You know, I drove by her the, her home uh, in my travels and I thought about stopping. If I hadn't been with the boys, I was probably it Walnut, would have Walnut stopped. Grove? Was it Walnut Grove or was it? I really don't remember. I just remember seeing a sign and I was like, oh, that would be kind of interesting to go and stop and see that. But, you know, we were on quite a quite a schedule, but I'm glad you made that correction. It's so funny because we were thinking, what was the name of the main character? What was the name of Melissa Gilbert's character? It's like, wait a minute. Laura Ingalls. Was Laura, Ingalls Wild. <laughs> <laughs> Laura Ingalls was her name, yeah. Yes. Uh, all right, so there. Okay, so um, I got a message in my uh, Instagram re uh, report last week. I'm just putting this out there for other people to watch out for this spam. But it, was in, it came in my message thing and it said, hello, in dear Instagram user. I'm not sure that Instagram would do that. Deer seems like a word that comes out of a, a spam from Africa, but <laughs> it just does. Um, a copyright violation has been detected in a post on your account. If you think copyright infringement is wrong, see, there should, there's, they're even missing a, like if you think a copyright infringement is wrong, they're missing like a preposition or whatever the word goes before that. You should provide feedback. Otherwise your account will be closed within 24 hours. You can give feedback from the link below. So I sent this to Emily, my person, and she investigated it and she found out that this is probably spam. Oh, good. Because first of all, we went through every post that we ever had and they're basically all original posts by me. So I, I don't know. And anything I put on my story is either my stuff or it's something I've shared from Instagram. So if I'm sharing a post that's already on Instagram, how is that, and it has a share button, how, yeah. how would that ever be copyright infringement? Yeah. Okay. So be uh, people beware of that. I don't trust anything that comes on my phone or any of the stuff anymore. And I, I think if they, you know, if my account gets shut down, then I would call Instagram or figure that out. But I. Yeah. When in doubt, don't click on a link. Don't click you're... on stuff. All right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I also got an Amber Alert this uh, two days ago. Did you get? Oh, did you get? Oh, did you? Were you in California? Okay. No Amber Alert for me. It came on just like an Amber Alert on, on your phone. A lot of people who are listening who live in California probably got the same thing. And here's what it says. Well, it was, I guess it was a city of LA alert. Mm -hmm. COVID cases are rapidly rising. Protect yourself, loved ones, and your community by getting vaccinated now. 
Vaccines are free, safe, and highly effective. So they sent out an Amber Alert for a public service announcement. Yes. Which isn't even true, by the way. All right, they may be free, but are they safe? Really? And are, are we finding out that they're really highly effective? Really? We'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> a little teaser. Yeah, okay, so let's see. Um, it's starting, people. Um, well, it's not starting. It's been going on for a while. And by the time this podcast goes on, it'll be going on for a while. But I was so excited recently. My med school buddy and my former med school roommate's son has got married during COVID. They're finally having a reception for him in Minneapolis come next month. And uh, I got the evite, and I'm reading the evite, and it says, we can't wait to see you, blah, 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 blah. Please RSVP by August 1st, blah, 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 blah. Second, in an effort to keep the wedding as safe as possible for everybody, we ask that you only attend if you are fully vaccinated against COVID-19. So. <laughs> so you don't get, you're not going, is I what I'm go. hearing. Yeah, yeah. Right. I don't understand that. I, I just, I, again, I don't understand it. If it's not safe, if you're vaccinated and you're not protected against unvaccinated people who are healthy, then what's the good of it? And if you and if you if it doesn't protect you, then why are you why are you letting vaccinated people into your reception? Because they're not safe either. Because they can carry COVID. Yeah, and they can carry it. And apparently, they can carry the Delta variant as much as a unvaccinated person. That's from Fauci's word mouth himself, the uh, the guru, the honest one. <laughs> Right, because it's similar to the flu, which is going to change. And the effectiveness of the flu vaccine, as you've spoken before on the podcast, is quite low. And um, so, you know, the, the bottom line scary, is but it's less we're not going to be yeah. fully protected, you know, yeah, from any, any of this. Yeah, it gets more infectious, but less deadly. So people get sniffles and colds and they don't go to the hospital. They don't get sick. And of course, they're still banning the use of, um, or not banning it, but they're still um, gaslighting the use of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine as it, it illustrated by my next brief story. Um, I've had, in the last week, I've had five requests from patients to call in um, a prophylactic prescription or possible exposure, or maybe even early COVID uh, to um, call in for either ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. Most people are requesting ivermectin these days, and that's fine. I now know the protocol for ivermectin. Um, I, I wasn't familiar with it before. Anyway, so I called it in and um, the pharmacist calls my secretary back and says, uh, they need to know the diagnosis. Yeah. And I said, well, tell them it's exposure to COVID. And then the pharmacist would not fill it for that diagnosis because CVS's computers won't let them. I don't believe it's the pharmacist himself or herself that's doing that. I think it's corporate, it's large corporations. But my question is this, and, you're gonna, and you already know where I'm going with this. Yep. If I call in an antibiotic for somebody, do they ever ask you the diagnosis? And and you're the doctor. Well, besides that, <laughs> so, do they ever ask for the diagnosis? No, never. If I, call, if I call in birth control pills for you, do they ever ask the diagnosis? Nope. No, it could be for dysfunctional bleeding as well as birth control. Right. All right. If I call in pain medicine for you, do they ever want to know the diagnosis? No, I mean, I guess, except for if they thought that there was some kind of addiction issues, they might, right? 
No, I mean, normally if, if you call in Tylenol with coding for somebody, mm -hmm. um, they're not going to call you up and say, um, well, did she have knee surgery? Did she have a, yeah. a migraine? Did she have, they don't, you know, they just fill it because you're the doctor. Yes. Yes. Not, not so with ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. They're, they're, somewhere along the line, they're going to pay a big price for this. All right. Because the, the truth is coming out that we could have kept a lot of people out of the hospital um, using yeah. these things. There's more data coming out all the time. Smaller studies where they have zero people hospitalized versus 11% hospitalized who aren't on ivermectin. Um, crazy stuff. Okay. Can you can you talk about the um, the way that those two different uh, protocols would be utilized? You mean the which protocols? One for treating and one for prophylaxis. Yeah, and you said that the um, hydrochloroquine and, and ivermectin you weren't familiar with. Can you? Yeah, well, they're, can both, you they're both used in, a, in. There's there's many different protocols. Mm -hmm. um, they're always, always, you should always use them in, in conjunction, by the way, with like vitamin D and zinc. Mm -hmm. And the protocol I have here also recommends a million, a thousand milligrams of vitamin C and melatonin, which is a new one to me and huh. something called curcetin. You know, you know what that is? Curcetin? No. U-E-R-C-E-T-I-N. No. I don't know what that is either. But anyway, okay. I'm just recommending it with vitamin D and zinc. Okay. And then... And then um, if someone feels like they're exposed, they would they would take it right away. You're yes. taking it prophylactically all the time, right? I take hydroxychloroquine once a week. Once a week. Right. With ivermectin, if you think you're exposed, you take the dose based on your weight on day one and day three. And then you take uh, one dose weekly for 10 weeks. And and another another diagnosis that that would be used with would be? Ivermectin? Mm-hmm. Well, it's used for, I mean, it, it's commonly used for some sort of parasite. But okay. I, yeah. That's where, Good to know. Yeah, that's where it's been used all along. That's why a lot of third world countries that, that are on hydroxychloroquine or, which is anti-malarial or, or ivermectin, which is anti-parasitic, um, they've had, they have lower incidences of those things until the governments took away their, <laughs> their medicine and then they got sick. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get into the weeds on that. People, most people by now should be familiar with the story about hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. If you're not, no, it's it's just you're... good to know because we we do discuss alternative uh, thought processes and therapies for people to really get to hear the whole thing. So thank you well, for sharing. Uh, yeah, the most important thing about these things is that they're incredibly safe and they're incredibly cheap. Yes. So if you have nothing else but waiting to see if you get so sick you have to go to the hospital. Why not? Right. No real side effects that people no. should be aware of from those medications? In, in normal, healthy people, almost none. Okay. Right. Thanks. Far less side effects than get catching, <laughs> the, catching COVID. Right. Okay. So the, the topic of today's podcast really starting to shape itself right now. I titled it uh, The Corruption of Science, and it's a really big deal. Um, so here's a letter from listener Laura, Lauren G. She writes, Dr. Sue, I'm a huge fan. I've been following your podcast for a long time now, and I prepared for my journey toward becoming a certified nurse midwife. I'm scheduled to start nursing school and get my ABSN on August 23rd. They just announced today that we must get the shot and have the second by 9-1. 
They are allowing exemptions, but you have to reapply for one each of the four semesters. I'm worried they approve the first one to get me in, and then once my money and degree is on the line, deny a subsequent uh, in, a, in a subsequent semester. Right. All right. The fact that she's even suspicious of it tells you how much confidence we now have in the um, in the medical and, and uh, uh, you know university community, those sorts of things. I mean, we used to trust these organizations. We don't trust them anymore. The hospitals here in Nashville, Tennessee have not mandated it, but one clinical site, Vanderbilt has, which I think is their motivation for, for mandating the shot in nursing school. I've been pursuing a CNM because I'm worried about the on-call life of CPMs and doulas. <laughs> you can attest to that. Yes. Do you have any advice you'd offer? I'm not willing to get the shot. I'd never forgive myself if I did something to mess with my fertility or injure myself. Thanks for taking a stand and for all the wisdom you share. So I wrote back to her and I said, hi, Lauren. I get, I, by the way, I get messages like this all the time. I suspect that people approach you with this too. Yeah. I get this similar message several times a day. There are no words to express my disgust at what is passing for acceptable today. How do I really feel? Since, since when did schools and employers have the right to ask about your medical history? I know we can't ask a prospective applicant for a job if they are pregnant or a cross-dresser. How did it come to this? Likely because the silent freedom loving majority is being gaslit and are unorganized. I can, can't tell you what to do because I'm not in your shoes. I can only say you are correct in your assumption that it will get worse. Many are being coerced into getting vaccinated or getting fake vaccine cards. So these institutions are turning good honest people toward larcenous behavior. This has always been the result of oppression, but no one cares to understand history. It's all hysteria all the time as it serves the purpose to grab power and suppress liberty. I personally would not work at a company or enroll in a school with my hard earned money who forced it upon me. And then, I, and then she wrote back, thank you for your response. I truly appreciate it. I know I've thought about getting a fake card before and hate that it even crossed my mind. She says, you're right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't support a business or restaurant or theater that demanded a shot. I just truly thought I could make it through the next 16 months without FDA approval and without a mandate. Mm -hmm. I hate that they have my future on the line. I do not care to practice the same way the traditional medical system is functioning right now, but the only way to get a CNM degree is through BSN. The board of BSN is, you know BSN? Board of, no, it's something nursing. Yeah. Maybe it's yeah. time to reconsider how I can promote healthy evidence-based birth without being a CNM. Yes, I think so. Right. Um, so what came to my mind is something I would like to read, if that's okay. Um, I, love, I, love, I love the way you always ask permission. Well, because I know that you, you think of a, a something, <clears throat> you have a certain amount of information that you want to get into a to a podcast. So, you know, I think that what is happening is that things are really falling away and shifting dramatically during this time. And I think that if we continue to try and fit into a broken system and we continue to try and play by those rules, um, it's going to become very difficult for people who feel the way that she does and the way that we feel to be able to really give our gifts in the way that our soul is telling us to. So, you know, part of my journey is getting back to nature. And so this post came up, I haven't reposted it yet, but I'm gonna read it to you. 
Um, and it, it, it's, there's a picture of a Native American man and his name is Floyd Red Crow Westerman. And this is what he says. We were told that we would see America come and go. In a sense, America is dying from within because they forgot the instructions of how to live on earth. It is the Hopi belief, it's our belief, that if you are not spiritually connected to the earth and understand the spiritual reality of how to live on earth, it is likely that you will not make it. Everything is spiritual. Everything has a spirit. Everything was brought here by the creator, the one creator. Some people call it God. Some people call him Buddha. Some people call him Allah. Some people call him other names. We call him, I'm going to butcher this, Tan Kash Shila. Someone correct me because that's, uh, I know I butchered that, but basically that means grandfather. We are here on earth only a few winters and then we go to the spirit world. The spirit world is more real than most of us believe. The spirit world is everything. Over 90% of our body is water. In order to stay healthy, you, you've got to drink good water. Water is sacred. The air is sacred. Our DNA is made out of the same DNA as the trees. The trees breathe what we exhale and we need what the tree exhales. So we have a common destiny with the trees. We are all from the earth. And when the earth, the water, the atmosphere is corrupted, it will create its own reaction. The mother is reacting. In, in the Hopi prophecy, they say the storms and floods will become greater. To me, it's not a negative thing to know that there will be great changes. It's not negative, it's evolution. And when you look at it as evolution, it's time. Nothing stays the same. You should learn how to plant something. That is the first connection. You should treat all things as spirit and realize that we are one family. It's never something like the end. It's like life. There is no end to life. And the reason that I read that is just because I think that you have to think outside of the box. And I think you have to find what your true truth is. And you have to be able to follow that. And if that means challenging the system and working outside of the system and creating something with people who have the same beliefs as you, then that's what's important. And it's not going to be easy. And none of this is going to be easy. But I think that trying, you know, it's the same conversation that we have about birth and the hospital system. It's like trying to fight that system of people who have cognitive dissonance and have no interest in hearing what you have to say, you're going to feel like you're beating your head against a wall. So that's a long response to the letter, but that's how I truly feel. Right. If you had a mic, you should drop it right now. <laughs> drop, drop the mic. Well, you know, that comes from Native American wisdom of being connected to earth. You know, it's not my words, no, but, no, but I'm yeah. saying this is why people love you and why we, they like listening to our podcast, because, you know, sometimes I go off on my, uh, you know, my tangents or my rant, my rants about the medical community and I get so tied up in it and you bring, bring us back to try to help us remember what's really important. This is what we do in our practices every day, but it, you know, my role in the podcast is just to try to bring people more information so that, that they will then go and look up stuff and do stuff and, and maybe question and challenge things or look for alternatives. Like you just yeah. described, or like I described earlier with, um, with uh, Michelle from Portugal, where if this isn't working for her, she needs to uh, l listen to her body and listen to what's going on. Just as 
just as the lovely twin lady who is exhausted as she was, as itchy as she was. Um, she did not have cholestasis, but she just had this skin thing whether she was itchy all the time. She just hung in there and waited and waited and waited for those twins to come. And they came exactly when they wanted to come and exactly the way that she wanted them to come. Yeah. And, um, right. No, I mean, look at, first of all, she had to fly to LA from Rhode Island in order to find someone who would deliver her twins. Oh, I don't think you ever said that part of the story. I didn't know that. that yeah, she they're, wasn't they're from Rhode Island. And they yeah. came out, she's got family out here. So she came out here. Her husband's in the military. And mm -hmm. so he couldn't come out until we were sure that they were going to have the twins. And so he kept getting pushed off and pushed off. So it was great because he, he watched the entire birth on a tablet. Oh, wow. And then he got to announce the sexes of the babies. He was the one that announced the sexes. We had to like get the tablet right up to the, uh, <laughs> and the lighting and we had low lighting in the room so it wasn't great but he was able to do it it was it was great and then he flew out he, he, by one o'clock the next day he was here uh, early flight out the next morning and and was here so um and you know he only has limited time because of his military commitment so yeah, yeah. um okay i love that reprieve but i got to get back into the scientific, unscientific weeds here. Okay, get there, into the weeds. Yeah, there's a, um, a physician named Peter McCullough. Some of you probably know who he is. He's a professor at Texas A&M, College of Medicine, president of the Cardio-Renal Society of America, editor-in-chief of the Reviews in Cardiovascular Medicine. He's got a hefty resume, just, let's just say that. And he was asked a question by a interviewer on a podcast and the question went something like this. Um, the questioner says, 25 people died during the swine flu vaccine. They shut it down immediately. Mm -hmm. The CDC is now acknowledging over 12,000 deaths. Now that may, re that may have been revised down to 6,000 or 8,000, but whatever it is, it's thousands of deaths from the COVID vaccine. Um, for perspective, that's three to four times the amount of people that perished in 9-11 some of the most deadly days in our world's history, specifically here in the United States, uh, and they're minuscule in comparison to these deaths. I just don't understand. So how did you come to the conclusion that these deaths or the condition of these ice inoculated patients was actually related to the injections? That's the question. So Dr. McCullough says, initially we didn't know. I just so find it so refreshing that an expert actually says, we didn't know because, have you heard on TV say that? Right. Not very often. They act like they know everything. And then when they're completely wrong and they say something completely opposite, they forget that they have video from a month before saying exactly the opposite. And they look really stupid. And they undermine the confidence that we could possibly have in my profession. Okay, so he says, as these deaths occurred to Mount on two occasions in March and then later on in June, the CDC put on their website that the CDC and FDA reviewers had looked at the deaths and none of them were related to the vaccine. And so doctors in my circles were questioning this because patients were immediately dying after the vaccine at the vaccine centers or then shortly thereafter. We'd be called about some kind of fatal event that's happened, whether it's at home or patients come to the hospital with some type of fatal event. And so two important analysis came forward, one from McLaughlin in London and one by Rose using the VAERS data system here in the United States. They basically concluded that this, that 50% of the deaths occur between 48 hours of the injection and 80% of the deaths occur within one week. 
So 86% of the deaths have no other explanation, they said. They're well enough to walk into an ambulatory clinic and actually have the COVID-19 vaccine, and within two days, they're dead. So it's my judgment, and I've done a lot of work on data and safety monitoring boards and clinical review boards. It's my judgment at this point in time that the vaccine is the cause of death in the majority of cases. The proposition now of coming in or even being pressured or forced or coerced into a vaccine, which for some people it looks like will be fatal, is an agonizing situation. I've never seen it in my career. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I, oh, there's one more. There's more to that. I'm sorry. There's one more paragraph. So we can't continue to do this and blindside Americans and people all over the world on safety. We can't ask them to take a vaccine without giving fair disclosure, fair balance on safety information. So the interviewer asked him if he's ever in his career seen a blank insert. I think he's talking about a package insert. Yeah. This is seen in the packaging of the vaccine vials. <laughs> I, I mean, it's an obvious, it's an obvious question to it. You know, the answer is obvious, but Dr. McCullough says he hasn't, and that the mechanism of that is the emergency use authorization. They're not fully approved, so there is no vetted packages inserts on safety information. There's no inserts in the vaccine? Because it's not FDA approved. It's an EUA. So the, the, wow. the package inserts apparently are blank. Wow. Now, again, I trust this reliable information because I trust Dr. McCullough. I don't know the interviewer, but Dr. McCullough would not answer the question if he thought it was a question. Yeah. Um, it's called Important Safety Information, or ISI. And what the viewer should know is that when something gets fully approved, it must be presented with fair balance. And what we see by our government agencies is that they're taking advantage of the loosely written EUA legislation, that's emergency youth authorization legislation, which doesn't indicate that fair balance needs to be presented, and so they're not presenting it. But I've chaired over two dozen data and safety monitoring boards with committee work. We always work in teams. I've been a part of major programs where we've had to shut it down because of safety. I've done this before. I've done this type of work. I've chaired the data and safety monitoring boards for the National Institute of Health. In fact, I'm doing so right now. So I can tell you as a doctor, and this is my book of business, I'm in my fourth decade of doing this. I can tell you this program should have been shut down in February based on safety. It's going to go down as the most dangerous biologic medicinal product rollout in human history. So for that, by saying that, this will, will be banned. But I'm not saying, I'm, I'm quoting uh, a, an expert who has huge credentials and a huge resume uh, who works for the NIH, worked for the NIH, who's done this on, on safety committees. And that is factual information, certainly something we should know, and that will be banned by social media, right? Do it. Okay. So um, next thing I have is, uh, do, do you know what Substack is, Bliss? No. Okay, so Substack is a website. It's a, it's a subscription website where you can go and follow some very good um, reporters and there's no censorship. I think this, I paid $50 to join and right now, I'm only following um, Glenn Greenwald and, and a, a reporter named Barry Weiss, who used to work for the New York Times, but left because she was sort of disgusted with what the New York Times was doing. Mm -hmm. And I would suggest to people that really it's, it's $50 well worth spent, and I have no stake in the game, to join Substack and because they have writers on there that you can actually read their stuff and it can't be um, canceled. 
by anybody because it's it's always there. So it's a good source for whatever you want to find. It's not just on medical stuff. They write there's all there's people that write on music. There's people that write on show business, all kinds of stuff. But they have their own Substack. Part of it is I think that the, they can get paid a little bit um, yeah. for the clicks or something like that. So it, it, well, I, I think. I think it's a good it's a good time to mention that um, you know we are aware that some of the stuff that we discuss is controversial. We are aware that there's potential of um, being uh, taken down off of Facebook or Instagram. These are things being censored. We've talked about this, and um, you know there are conversations in the works uh, of moving to Patreon. And so, you know, that's very similar to what you're discussing where, um, you know, it's a completely separate platform where people who are not necessarily saying what the majority of, of the, majority the population the are saying. The majority what? is even saying that it's the people in power that are saying it. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're, you're right because, you know, I mean, yeah, you're, you're correct. Yeah. I just want to be clear that, that I don't think a majority, look at, I, I would tell you that like you look at vaccine mandates or passports, okay? Well, 50% of people in the country, give or take, I'm just throwing out numbers, have not been vaccinated, okay? So they clearly don't want to be vaccinated because if they wanted to be vaccinated, they've been vaccinated by now. They would have, yeah. So they're against vaccine passports. And I would, I would be willing to bet that half the people that have been vaccinated are still libertarian enough and believe in, in the Bill of Rights that they don't believe a vaccine passport in this country is valuable either. Right. So that would be at least 75% of the population. And what I find amazing is the same people who tell you that having an ID to go vote is racist want you to have a vaccine passport, which is a form of ID. And you don't think that that vaccine passport will be used as an ID and you'll be tracked. Right. Travel wherever you go, whatever venue you go in, it'll be scanned. It'll have an QR code on it or it'll have a barcode on it. And it will be scanned and they'll know exactly what you're doing, even if they already don't know because you already got your phone and they know exactly what you're doing anyway. So, I mean, I just think the majority of people in America are not for mandates. They're not for this totalitarian state. And I don't think that most people should fear, should live in fear. It's a terrible way to live. You know, what's his name? Floyd Red Crow Westerman would not want, us, would not want to be living like that. And they had a lot more to fear back in, you know, in the, in the tribal days than we have now. Yeah. And they did. Yeah. Okay. So this one, bless, I'm, I, you know, again, I, I want to preface this by saying, I know that there may be, this may be triggering for some of our listeners, but I want to read it anyway, because, because I, I, this whole topic is about the corruption of science. And this is an article from Substack by a writer named Barry Weiss. That's a, a B-A-R-I, uh, W-E-I-S-S. And the title of it is, uh, well, actually, before I do that, I, I wanted to read, um, hang on, let me take this off, my clips. I used my famous highlighter. <laughs> the famous highlighter. Yeah. Okay. So before I read the title of the thing, I wanted to read this paragraph. During, during a recent endocrinology course at a top medical school at the University of California system, a professor stopped mid-lecture to apologize for something he'd said at the beginning of class. I don't want you to think that I'm in any way trying to imply anything. And if you can summon some generosity to forgive me, I would really appreciate it. The physician says in a recorded provi recording provided by a student in the class who
who Barry Weiss calls Lauren. That's not her real name, obviously. Again, I'm very sorry for that. It was certainly not my intention to offend anyone. The worst thing that I can do as a human being is to be offensive. Before I go on anymore, I just have to ask one question. Is it really? The worst thing that you can do in life as a human being is be offensive? I don't think so. I think there's a lot of things. It wouldn't even make my top 10 <laughs> for the worst things that you can do you know, as a human being. Mm -hmm. Right. As a matter of fact, being offensive sometimes is necessary. All right. But well, you can't please everybody. That's for sure. Yeah. And then, but this is the language. This is the language of newspeak. All right. His offense was what? Using the term pregnant woman. Okay. Mm -hmm. So med schools are denying biological sex. Professors are apologizing for saying male and female. Students are policing the teachers. This is what it looks like when activism takes over medicine. Why would medical school professors apologize for referring to a patient's biological sex? When sex is acknowledged by her instructors, it's sometimes portrayed as a social construct, not a biological reality, says Lauren, the imaginary student. In a lecture on transgender health, the instructor declared biological sex, sexual orientation, and gender are all constructs. These are all constructs that we have created. Okay, now wait a minute. I have to stop for a second. So I had to look up the word construct. Okay. Construct is a created sentence or argument. All right. So when you say biologic sex is a construct, that means it's a created sentence or an argument. So that you've constructed it. But is biologic sex a construct or is it actually a thing? All right. And didn't they say, and they're calling sexual orientation a construct, which means it's created. But didn't they a few years ago say that, that sexual identity, I mean, sexual preference was, uh, you were born with it? Didn't they make a big deal about it, that it wasn't a learned behavior, that you were, it was born intuit intuitively into you? Didn't they argue the opposite just a few years ago? I think they did. That's just me thinking. So... And then they start talking and they start to use these words that for the average person, including myself, and maybe even you, Bliss, it starts to get so confusing, I can't even understand the new language because, because they're coming up with these new nuanced word, nuanced language all the time. And I think the nuanced language has to come from, you know, from PhDs in college coming up with new things because normal people don't speak like that. In other words, some of the country's top medical students are being taught that humans are not, like other mammals, a species comprised of two sexes. Now, some people may believe that, but let's, let, let's, let's go on. The idea that sex is a social construct may be an interesting, interesting debate fodder in an anthropology class. But in medicine, the material reality of sex really matters in part because the refusal to acknowledge sex can have devastating effects on patient outcomes. And she gives an example. In the New England Journal of Medicine last year, it reported a case of a 32-year-old transgender man who went to an ER complaining of abdominal pain while the patient disclosed he was transgender his medical records did not. He was simply a man. The triage nurse determined that the patient who was obese was in pain because he'd stopped taking medication uh, meant to relieve his hypertension. This was no emergency, she decided. She was wrong. The patient was in fact pregnant and in labor. By the time hospital staff realized that it was too late, the baby had died, and the patient, despite his own shock at being pregnant, was shattered. 
to, to Dana Bear, a trans activist in Maryland who is also a retired surgeon, she says, the practice of medicine is based in scientific reality, which includes sex, but not gender. The more honest a patient is with their physician, the better odds for a positive outcome. Um, when we discuss sex risks, it's, we have to know male or female because um, most people, there are true believers who think that this isn't valuable, but most of us probably are just scared to say it because we're scared of being um, ostracized or lose our job or ostracized by our students. So they're reluctant to discuss it. But, but many diseases, Liz, are specific to male or female. Yes. Okay. Just like just like knowing somebody's um, um, race also can be very helpful in terms of understanding different um, diseases that could be more prevalent. Yeah, it's a, it's. I mean, there's so much to read here. I'll just say that that um, take abdominal abdominal aortic aneurysms. There are four times as likely to occur in males than females, but this very significant difference isn't emphasized anymore. I had to look it up, and I don't know the time. I don't have the time to look up sex predominance for hundreds of diseases. I'm expected to know. I'm not even sure what I'm being taught, and unless my classmates are as skeptical as I am, they probably aren't aware either. Other conditions that present differently at different rates in males and females include hernias, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, multiple sclerosis, asthma. Males and females also have different normal ranges for kidney function, which impacts drug dosage. They have different symptoms during heart attacks. Males complain of chest pain, while women experience fatigue, dizziness, and indigestion. In other words, biological sex is a hugely important factor in knowing what ails patients and how to properly treat them. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, for sure. So today's students will go on to hold professional positions that give them a great deal of power over others' bodies and minds. These young people are our future doctors, educators, researchers, statisticians, and psychologists. To ignore or downplay the reality of sex and sex-based differences is to perversely handicap our understanding and our ability to increase human health and thriving. Uh, how did male and female, sorry. How male and female members of our species develop, how they differ genetically, anatomically, physiologically, and with respect to diseases and their treatment are foundational to clinical medicine and research. Efforts to erase or diminish these foundations should be unacceptable to responsible professional lead leaders. Okay, is that an oxymoron? Okay. Are you asking me a question? Yeah, responsible professional <laughs> leaders. <laughs> um, I, I understand completely the point that you're making. Um, and I think that what I would want to add to it is pointing back to what I was saying when I read that post is that we're in a very complex time and there are a large portion of uh, people who have felt like they haven't been heard and they have been marginalized. And it is very confusing. It's very hard to figure out when you are coming from a certain perspective, how to integrate those changes. Um, so I don't think it's black and white. And I think that the more that we can try and stay uh, you know, with an open mind, an open heart, a loving heart towards all people, um, I think that we can navigate these changes together. 
Um, and I think that, again, that's one of the things that people appreciate about our podcast is that, you know, we don't always necessarily agree or come from the exact same perspective, but we can respect each other and listen from an open mind because of the respect that we have for one another. And I think that that's a very good point. You know, there are biological differences. And I think, and instead of like putting it in a box, I think, and at the same time, there are, there are human beings um, that are that are asking for us to try and understand their perspective a little bit more. And I think that, you know, sometimes when there's change, the pendulum can swing very far to one side and then there, there becomes a middle point. And I'm hoping that when that middle point happens, we're all a little bit more understanding of the diversity and the differences that we have in the spectrum of human beings. And there is male and female. But there also are times, gray times, even if you're looking at, at a um, purely biological perspective where the anatomy or what's happening inside of the body is not black and white. You can't put that person into a box. So um, I'm going to keep pointing back to nature and, and helping us look at it, as you were saying, not from the social constructs, because a lot of what we argue about and, and stand on our soapboxes about is about language and it's, it's all social construct. So the truth is when you start to pull away from that a little bit, and hopefully as I continue down my journey and I pull a little bit more away from the social constructs in my own life, I can help to point to some of the insanity that we argue about in, you know, when we're so immersed in the culture. Yeah, the truth, uh, thank you, Bliss. I mean, the truth is that not everything is subjective, all right? Mm -hmm. There are objective truths. Yes. I know that saying that now is is actually supposedly bigoted or racist or part of my white supremacist culture or whatever, but there are there are truths. And I, I think that this article goes on and on a lot about other things because it's very in-depth. Substack does really in-depth articles. But the point I wanted to make was the idea that that students are now monitoring the professors. The professors have no courage. The university leaders don't back the professors. So everybody shuts up and we're gonna teach a generation of people things, which in medicine can be devastating. I mean, I have a prostate gland, okay? Yeah. If I transition to a woman, and even if I have surgery, all right? Someday I could be having a lot, of, I could be 70 years old, I could be having a lot of bone pain and they're gonna tell me, oh, you got osteoporosis. No, I have metastatic prostate cancer. <laughs> right. Because they're gonna forget that I have a prostate gland. Right. Because I, nowhere on my papers does it list that I was a biological male. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good point. Right, so I can't invade it, it. I mean, it's invading everything. And it's, we need to be more selective about where we, make changes in our society and where we stand up for things that need to be stood up for. Here's another thing, okay, sort of a brave new world type thing, a, a tribute to Aldous Huxley, um, one, another one of my favorite science fiction authors as a kid, uh, different from, um, from uh, Orwell, but same sort of idea. Um, this is a story that came up, this was from two years ago, but I thought it was really relevant because I, I don't know why it crossed my plate now. I think because you and I at birth bliss, we and all of everybody that does a home birth, 
we do the newborn screen and um, we've been doing it since we started and they do it in the hospital and it's sort of a, a law in all states that babies should have a newborn screen. Parents can opt out, but, but pretty much nobody, nobody opts out for that because it is a test that, that provides good information. All Some right? people opt out. Yeah, but Some not, people. right. But this is a story from three years ago and we, and you and I already know this, but I don't know that all of our listeners know this, so I'm bringing it to their attention. The DNA of every baby born in California is stored. Who has access to it? And this is from CBS News. State law requires that parents are informed of their right to request the child's sample be destroyed. But the state does not confirm parents actually get that information before storing it or selling it, selling the child's DNA. CBS station KPIX has learned that most parents are not getting the required notification and the DNA may be used for more than just research. A newborn genetic screening test is required in all 50 states and is widely believed to be a miracle of modern medicine. Nearly every baby born in the United States gets a heel prick shortly after birth, usually within what, 24 hours, please? Um, 48 hours? Yeah, I think, I think because of uh, the hospitals, it's usually they ask that it be done within 24, but it really can be done at any point. Okay, their newborn blood fills six spots on a special filter paper and card. It's used to test the baby for dozens of congenital disorders that if treated early enough, could prevent severe disabilities and even death. It is estimated that newborn screening leads to potentially life-saving early diagnosis each year in five to 6,000 children nationwide. And in California, they probably, they diagnosed 2,498 babies from 2015 to 27 alone with a serious congenital disorder that if had been left untreated could have caused irreparable harm. So, you know, seems like a harmless test. It's a needle stick in the, I mean, it's a prick in the foot. And uh, the all the 2,500 babies were prevented from having, you know, that some of these diseases are not preventable, but some are simply preventable by when a baby starts taking food or whatever, avoiding certain amino acids, avoiding certain foods, and they don't develop these, these problems, okay? Mm-hmm. The lab generally only needs a few of the blood spots for the baby's own potentially life-saving genetic test. They used to collect five blood spots from each child in California. They've now increased that to six. That was three years ago. Mm-hmm. Some states destroy the blood spot after a year. 12 states store them for at least 21 years. California, however, is one of a handful of states that stores the remaining blood spots for research indefinitely in a state-run biobank. Even though the parents pay for the life-saving test itself, the child's leftover blood spots become property of the state and may be sold to outside researchers without the parent's knowledge or consent. In California, however, in order to get the potentially life-saving genetic test for your child, you have no choice but to allow the state to collect and store the remaining samples. You do have the right to ask the biobank to destroy the leftovers after the fact, though the agency's website states it may not be able to comply with your request. <laughs> oh boy. Dr. Fred Laurie, a former director of the California Genetic Disease Screening Program, explained that blood spot samples are invaluable to researchers. According to the Department of Public Health, more than 9.5 million blood spot samples have been collected since 2000. And the state has stored blood spots since 1983. As a result, California can now test newborns for more than 80 different disorders, more than any other state. The standard panel nationwide is only around 30 disorders. But researchers with the California Genetic Disease Screening Program aren't the only ones with access to samples stored in the biobank. Blood spots are given to outside researchers for $20 to $40 per spot. 
Regulations require that California genetic screen program be self-supporting. It has to pay for itself, Lori noted. Allowing outside researchers to buy newborn blood spots helps to recoup the cost. But it's peanuts. All right, the program, uh, over the past five years, the program collected about $700,000 from selling blood spots. The program collects about $128 million every fiscal year from fees generated by the parents alone for paying for the test. So it's about, about $140,000 a year from selling spots. But Dr. Lori says it helps, to, it helps researchers recoup the cost. That's not really true. And we pay for the cards. It's a dollar per card we're required to and, and the get them and we pay for, for the them. cards. Yeah. Right. And you have to do the paperwork. You don't get paid to collect the, you don't get paid a collection fee. You don't get paid a uh, paperwork fee. That's right. That's right. You know, the, the cord blood people used to have us collect cord blood that they would store and charge $1,500 for. And, the, and, and, and doctors finally protested and they started paying us to do it. Yeah. Because we have to collect it and we have to then fill out the paperwork and we have to package it up. And that mm -hmm. takes time. So they started paying, I think they pay like $250 to do it. But you guys are expected to do it, collect the blood, take the time, address the labels, all that stuff, pay a dollar for the card and get no reimbursement for your time. Hmm. Maybe you should, guys should rethink your strategy and write the California genetic screening program and say, we're not doing it anymore unless you pay us. I don't know that'll help because I, I, we're, again, we're, it's like herding cats with herding midwives, but um, okay. Well, while the state okay. may not make money off your child's DNA, Lori admitted that there is the potential for outside researchers to profit off your child's material. Could they create a test or treatment that they ultimately profit from? These researchers have made requests are scientific researchers. He explained, Mr. Lori, Dr. Lori, that researchers who request the spots must meet specific criteria. Their studies must be first approved by a review board. They're also supposed to return or destroy remaining blood spots after use. I don't know if about you, but I'm not feeling any safer about that, okay? But the, the reporter pressed Lori on that point. So there's no possibility a researcher may request blood spots for specific research, but then keep blood spots without the department's knowledge to be used for other purposes. Dr. Lori says, I want to say no, but I'm not ready to say no because I know how human beings can be sometimes. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? No. Puzzled look on your face. So no. I'm saying that they're supposed to not profit off of these things, but there's no way to prove that these researchers aren't profiting off of them. Right, I got it. Right. I mean, there, there is a story, a famous story of, of some very, very poor black person who lived in Appalachia or something like that. And they, he had a rare blood thing. And a pharmaceutical company, I don't know, I can't remember which one, so I won't name one, used his blood and, and, and created a drug or created something that made them millions and millions of dollars. And they never paid the family a penny. So it does happen. Yeah. Uh, the, the people who complain have shared their feelings with several state lawmakers. Many were shocked to learn that the state was storing DNA samples from every baby born in the state. They don't even know. People yeah. in Sacramento. You should shout loudly because you're near Sacramento, right? You should just go to the steps of the Capitol, Bliss. Okay, I'll do that for you today. And start selling them to outside researchers without parents' knowledge or consent. So far, however, none have shown any interest in giving parents the right to opt out of storage before the child is born, or even requiring that the state to confirm parents are being informed before their blood is stored. 
And that was three years ago. And I can tell you that nothing has changed since then. Absolutely. Nope. And you use a private company. Do you want to talk, tell, just tell people? Yeah, about I use a, I, uh, there's a private company named Perkins Elmer. And people who want to find out more about that can go to PerkinsElmerGenetics.com and you can sign up and get an account. And they, I think they test for only 57 things, but it's only $97 if you have an account. So it's about $30, $40 cheaper than the state. And they only have five dots and they're a private company. Now, does a private company guarantee that they're not storing your DNA or selling it? No, it doesn't. But it's not the government anyway. And I think a lot of us right now for good reason are fed up with the government. And so is that just in California, Stu? No, no, it's a it's a company. Nationwide? Back yeah, it's a company. Okay. Back east. And um, do you know if insurance would cover it through that company? I've never found out. I've never, okay. you know, because I don't know. I don't know. Again, if they if they build a patient separately, it's more than $97. But if they yeah. maybe they have insurance, they could figure it out. And and the, okay. and practitioners could get the account or they could have the patients build separately. But Great. I think it's, Thanks. I think it's it's a good option. So I have, yeah. I have a, one little uh, paragraph that I wanted that I wrote myself that I want to read in summary. Okay. Do you have anything okay. else before we go? No, I think I've said a lot today. <laughs> yeah, and you, well, I know, and so have I. And I think that we've I've flooded with information, but there's this stuff comes at me, and I feel like this is my this is my release. This is my way of getting things out that I feel yeah. very strongly about, and I know that. The people who listen to us like the fact that we do this. So, this and I and I was just thinking as you were sharing because I am unplugging from so much um, that I personally, you know, we don't really talk about what you want to talk about prior to the podcast. We just kind of get on and start talking. So I appreciate the information. Um, I appreciate, you know, as I said on your birthday post, I appreciate who you are and the courage that you have to continue to think independently and um and help us to understand some things that may not be mainstream discussed so keep going Stu. we love you yeah and i'm i know i'm a uh, fan of floyd red, red crow westerman too so. oh good <laughs> uh, okay so this is my summary for today's podcast or right, everything that i've told you about this and so much more are destroying confidence in medicine and the and once trusted institutions it's been going on for a long time, this, this destruction of trust, especially in OB. We've been talking about it on the podcast. For, I've been talking about it since 2013, but it's been going on for a long time. But um, it's gotten seen, it seems like it's gotten so intense and so much more worse. That's not good English. So much worse now. Mm -hmm. My mother was an English teacher. So when I say things like more worse, oh my God. <laughs> right. So-called medical experts and leaders from the Surgeon General to the head of the CDC, to Fauci, to president and vice president, to the ridiculous secretary of defense, to the media who propped them all up, constantly being wrong, contradicting themselves from things they recently said to outright lying. They are devaluing, devaluing their own currency by their illogical and tyrannical behavior. In other words, by that I mean they are making, making what they say have no value because they been caught lying and be, been caught perseverating, been caught saying, being refusing to say, you know, I, we don't know that. We don't know that. They never, they never say that. They act always as if they know. Maybe there's, maybe there's a school that they go to when they go into politics that says never apologize, never say that. But anyway, they're devaluing their own currency 
by their tyrannical behavior. They don't know anything and just cannot utter those words, quote, we don't know. So why would anyone with an ounce of honesty and common sense trust these institutions and people ever again? Which is tragic. They're either idiots or unethical or evil. There is no other option. And in a future podcast, I'm going to be, I want to foreshadow that I'm going to be doing an expose on the American Medical Association. I think people hear that term, they think, oh, they're an organization that, that has our best interest and the doctor's best interest at heart. Uh, 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 uh. So we'll be talking about that in a future podcast. Look forward to it. Okay. So I might do that one, one of those when you're sort of maybe off in the woods someplace, but uh, I love, I love when you're on, even when I do my things, cause, cause you add, first of all, just seeing your face when I'm talking helps me to know whether I'm being understood or not. That's why I hate, <laughs> well, I hate virtual, um, giving virtual conferences and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you can't see your audience. It's, it's, it's not human. Uh, so what are you up to the rest of the day? Um, we're going apartment hunting and uh, my car and my kitty cat, Jax, is being delivered today. So it's a big day. Uh, we're doing another postpartum visit on the twins. We were there yesterday as well, but I'm just double checking. We're going to do the newborn screen with Perkins Elmer, by the way. And <laughs> um, then tomorrow I'm going down to San Diego to also look for housing. Yeah. Um, if I can find anything down there. Uh, Be closer to your daughter, which is great. My daughter in the long run. I, I'm going to stay up here for now. You know, my plans have varied. I was planning to leave California, but my kids are here. I'm just waffling. And then I look at prices of houses sometimes in Texas or Tennessee, and I go, Geez, you know, maybe I should go to Texas or Tennessee. <laughs> a lot more for your money there. And it's yeah. a, lot less, a lot less crazy because we're back on lockdown here. We have to wear masks in the grocery store and all that stuff. And, the, and I'm not even going to get into that today because people, people just pay attention to what's going on. Okay, pay attention. Do not believe what you're reading in your local newspapers. That's not a place to go. Go to go to reliable sources. Go to Cheryl Atkinson. Go to Substack. Um, John Solomon. Go to listen to people who are giving you fair information. There are certain writers like Alex Berenson or Heather McDonald. These other people. That's where you should be getting information. They don't have a dog in that fight. They're not. They're not selling out to corporate sponsors or to their ideology. Anyway, so that's all I have to say today. That's a lot, my jaw hurts. <laughs> so thanks you all for listening as always. And um, in our tradition of the Birthing Instincts podcast, Bliss. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 